is going to come out of Ecclesiastes. We're going to start in chapter 1 and read the first 11 verses together. Let me warn you, they're not encouraging verses, so it seems, okay? But just hang in there with me. We will get to the hope that we do find in this uh, interesting book of the Bible. So let's read this together out of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labor at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is had its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. But no one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I warned you it wasn't cheery. It wasn't exactly a cheery scripture reading, okay? We do have Kingdom Kids today. So for those kiddos who are four years old through second grade, <laughs> can head to Kingdom Kids. I love seeing that because it means they're excited about it. You know what I mean? It means they're looking forward to it. Which, of course, I know they do. And they're going to be in our education or in our Christian Life Center next door, the metal building where the gym is at. They'll be in the upstairs classroom where some kiddos have Bible study right next door. And uh, so, parents, don't forget, pick those kids up after service today. Don't forget. Don't forget. <laughs> I thought this was free babysitting for life. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I think uh, if you have been reading with us through Ecclesiastes or, or through our Bible reading plan, you, you've made it almost all the way through Ecclesiastes. You've got a few more chapters to go in the next few weeks or in the next few days of this upcoming week. And if you have been reading along, I would imagine you may feel perplexed at times when you read through Ecclesiastes. One of the things I could say to you that might help or encourage you is, especially in a book like this, which I, in my study, I've heard other people, commentators and preachers and such, say, this is the most difficult book in the Bible to work through. Not the difficulty that we had with Job, which was in itself a very difficult book dealing with suffering. But in just the words of the teacher, or sometimes translated the teacher, and that's actually where we get the title Ecclesiastes, that's where it comes from. The Hebrew word gets translated into the Greek word koheleth, and that means one who assembles. So that's what Ecclesiastes means. It means one who assembles, and for what purpose? To teach or to preach, right? And so you will read in here that most of what we read in Ecclesiastes are the thoughts or the ideas, the message 
of the teacher or the preacher. And you've got an introduction and then a conclusion written by what it seems like someone else who is observing not only the life of the preacher or teacher, but also trying to encapsulate at the end the message of this preacher or teacher. Now we can guess that it's maybe uh, Solomon, who was King David's uh, son, who took the throne after King David. That is what the traditional authorship is pinned at, is that it's, it's Solomon. But Solomon, the name actually never appears in Ecclesiastes, so we can't be really for certain. But certainly when you read through it, you do get the idea that it's pointing to someone at least like Solomon, if you know some of his story. We'll kind of get into that here in just a moment. But what I was trying to say before I got off into a very long sidebar was that when you read a challenging book like this, it's often helpful to have a study guide. And I'm a huge proponent of study Bibles. If you've been with us for a while, you've heard me talk about that a lot. I think they're great. The ESV study Bible, the NIV study Bible are two of the best that there is. There's an NLT. These are different kinds of translations that will take from the original languages of the Bible and put them into English. And there are several different English translations, and these are the ones I'm mentioning, NIV, ESV, NLT, etc. What I use a lot of times are all of those, but we buy NIV Zondervan, which is the publisher, study Bibles. If you don't have a good study Bible and you would like one, just catch me after service today and I'll give you one. I think we have at least a few on the shelf, and I give them away all the time because they are so helpful. And in a book like that, what it's going to do is give you an introduction to Ecclesiastes at the beginning of the book. And then as you work through, uh, not every verse, but a lot of the verses, especially the ones that may be most problematic to interpret. Like, what in the world does this mean again? Often enough, there's notes underneath the scripture written by scholars who have studied it for a very long time. And they give you a good idea of what the author of the Bible is trying to say. And so I'm saying that because when you get to these tough books, it is so helpful to have a guide like a study Bible. And if you want one, you need one, I would be glad to get you one today, okay? All that to say, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is after, I think is found in the second part of verse 3 in chapter 2. I want to look at that for just a second, and then I want to pray And get into how he goes about finding the solution to the issue he raises. Again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, halfway through verse 3. Here he says, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I learned in school that when you read a book, you want to find out. What is the intent of the author of this book? What are they trying to get at? What question are they trying to answer? What solution are they trying to provide? What's the big idea here? And if I could say it this way, I think the big idea of Ecclesiastes is the teacher or the preacher is after the answer to the question, what is the good life? What is the good life? And it reminds me of what Jesus said that I quote often is Jesus said, I came into the world to give you a good life. He says it like this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, the good life, John 10.10. So what is the good life? What is the full life in the eyes of the writer of Ecclesiastes? That's what we're going to look at. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to begin by thanking you for new life in Christ. 
the beauty of baptism, the courage of Tyler and Kayla to share their faith in this uniquely Christian way. Now, what a wonderful way to start our service and to continue through song and just pouring out our hearts to you and and singing to you, God, you're worthy of our worship. And God, we come to a challenging book to me, to many of us, to understand. And God, we could reason it out in our own human thinking, but, but there's something better, and that's the insights that your Holy Spirit can provide. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through, this, through the message of Ecclesiastes. That our, that our minds might be ready to understand what it has to say. That our ears might be open to hear what it has to say. That our eyes might be looking for what you have to say to us. That our hearts might be soft and ready to receive it. Our hands and our feet might be ready to take what you have shown us today and live it out. Just as your son Jesus told us. We do not build our life on the sand but on the rock. We take what we know of him and we live it out in our lives. As his half-brother James would say, we are not just hearers of the word, but we seek to be doers of it. So this is what we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the question I think Ecclesiastes is trying to answer is, what is the good life? And of course, it's going to get around to, once we have an answer to that question, how do we get the good life? How do we live the good life? I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So he goes through, and the writer here, if it is indeed Solomon, or if it's at least based on Solomon, you may know a little bit about him. Solomon became king after David, and he he had immense wealth. He had every pleasure you could imagine. What stood out about Solomon, those things, obviously, if you read about him, it says he's, he, he had just these things in abundance, but he also had wisdom. Wisdom that he used early on in life. If you read about Solomon, you find out he uses that wisdom a little bit less towards the end of his life, and that's kind of a sad part of his story. But when God asks him for what he wants, Solomon says, give me wisdom, and God gave it to him. So he had this incredible wisdom, this incredible wealth. He had pleasures at his fingertips. And he would go about building what we call Solomon's temple. The most impressive temple that the Israelites ever knew. It was enormous. It was beautiful. It reflected the the grandeur, the beauty, the glory of God in their temple where they would go and offer sacrifices. And you would think if anybody, if anybody were to have a good life, it would have been him because he had all those things. And he writes here to set us straight, to let us know that no, those are not the things, at least not solely, certainly, that bring about a good life. Towards the end of chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes, I'll just call him the teacher. You could say preacher, you could say Solomon. I'll just call him the teacher. The teacher says... You cannot find the good life in wisdom. Now he says that first, I think, because that is what, among many things, 
I think that's what Solomon is known for the most. Like I said, he prayed for wisdom. He received wisdom. He had more wisdom than anybody who ever walked the planet up until his day. People would come from around the world literally to come to his feet to ask him questions, to get his insight because they believed he possessed such supernatural, Holy Spirit, God-given wisdom. So you would think if the answer to the question, what is the good life, if it were Solomon, that he would answer wisdom. It's the thing I asked for when God asked me what I wanted. Wisdom is what we all need. So it's surprising that he would say, you know what? The sole pursuit of knowledge only brings grief. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 18. The teacher says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. If we're looking for the good life in knowledge or wisdom, we won't find it there. That's not the sole place we should go, at least. And as I think about that for us, you know, maybe we live in an information technological age and anything you want to know, you can know. It's at your fingertips. Now, I'm in a bridge generation, which means I knew the world before email and Google and social media. And right as I became a young adult, I was introduced to that world. So I know what it was like. To not know stuff and have to actually go to a library or someone older than you or more knowledgeable than you to ask a question to get answers to stuff, right? I remember that time. Some of you do too. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. You say, I Google absolutely everything. I YouTube how to do everything. And let me tell you, it is a godsend. It's a wonderful, great tool that we can use for so many things, but it can't produce the good life. More knowledge, more information. Some strive to make all A's. Some strive to get this training and that. Some will put all their hopes into a degree. And nothing is wrong with any of that. Except when that becomes the sole pursuit of the good life God has for us. If those things become our sole pursuit of the good life God has for us, all we're going to find out is not only is there a bunch of stuff to know that can be a little depressing, let's be honest. There's a bunch of stuff. Once you know stuff, you begin to know how much you don't know. And that can be depressing in itself as well. More knowledge, more wisdom, more information isn't going to produce for us the good life. And the teacher knew that. Well, if it's not in knowledge, perhaps it is in pleasure. Maybe the good life is found in the sole pursuit of pleasure, of things that bring us joy, food, sex, and so on. There's all sorts of things we could add to the pleasure list that we could look at and say, well, man, life would be great if I had all of that. And some people make that their sole pursuit. And if they would hear out what Solomon had to say, they would be willing to listen To what he had to teach, they would find that all that pleasure, if that's your sole pursuit for the good life, all that pleasure is not going to help you gain anything. He says in chapter 2, starting in verse 10, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Now keep in mind, if this is Solomon, he is one of the wealthiest people ever. 
And if it's not Solomon, it's still a king of Israel, which meant he still would have had a lot of wealth. And he's saying, what did I do with all of that wealth? I tried pleasure. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, Ecclesiastes 2.11, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I remember when I was a kid and I would have this reoccurring dream that somehow, by the grace of God, I came about having four-wheelers, motorcycles, dirt bikes, lots of them. That's what I would dream about. I would be so excited that I got all this great stuff that I could enjoy Whenever I want it. And then I would wake up. Have you ever woken up from a really good dream and you feel disappointed? Like, man, I really wanted to go to Hawaii, right? So I really wanted dirt bikes and motorcycles and four-wheelers. And I woke up and realized, I don't have that. I was so sad. Of course, you know, I'm just a kid. But what's really sad is when that's the dream of an adult. I want these toys. I want these fun things. I want these experiences. I want pleasure. That's got to be the good life, is to have all the pleasure one could desire. And here we have someone speaking to us thousands of years before we were ever born saying, no, I tried that. I tried that. It's going to get you nowhere. You will gain nothing. Now, you got to understand, taken as a whole, the Bible is not against pleasure. God made us to enjoy pleasure. In fact, every one of, the thing, of these things he's tried, we will find in Scripture some support for it. He's just saying, if that's your sole pursuit for the good life, you will be disappointed. It is not found in pleasure. What about in being remembered? What about in posterity? What about fame? What about our name being known through the generations? I do this little exercise. Everybody hates it. I'm going to do it again. Uh, because I think it's fun, personally. It is a little depressing, but here, we're going to give it a go, all right? If you know your grandparents' names, raise your hand. How many of you know your grandparents' names? Everybody knows where I'm going, and you're already depressed. I'm sorry. Okay, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. This This is a little exercise. Okay, keep your hand up if you know your great grandparents' names, like all of them. Not just a few of them, but all of them. Okay. How many of you know your great, great, great grandparents' names? All of them. One left. Someone has spent time on (laughs) Ancestry.com. Been memorizing some stuff over there. Ecclesiastes 2, 15 and 16 says this. The fate of the fool will overtake me as well. What then do I do? What do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be remembered long. The days have already come when both will be forgotten. So one of the things the teacher does is says, let me pursue wisdom and folly so that I can see how wisdom will get you a name that lasts while folly will destroy your life. Surely that's the good life is to have a good name. And in fact, that is a good thing. 
But on the whole, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, if that is your sole pursuit of the good life, your name's going to be forgotten. You don't remember your great-great-grandparents' names. You will join them in that one day. It would be depressing if it weren't for the fact that God remembers every name. That your life on earth does have meaning. That it does count to Him. But if your sole pursuit of the good life is to have a good name that will last for generations and generations and generations and generations beyond you, the likelihood is it's not going to happen. I thought it would be fun to find out you know, like, who's the 13th president? Anybody, can anybody name the 13th president without Google? Anybody? Anybody? No. Probably not. I couldn't even tell you, and I looked it up just the other day. I've already forgotten, y'all. I've already forgotten what the guy's name was. Google. You use Google. Yeah, no, it wasn't you. You listen to this guy. Good try, though. Someone way back there. But think about it. The President of the United States is one of the most well-known people in the world today. He will be forgotten. And so will you and I. So if our sole pursuit is to have a good name that will last a good while, it's not going to happen. If you're not depressed enough, let's talk about work. (laughs) Okay, so one of the other categories in which the teacher goes about trying to find the good life is in one's work or toil. Can you find the good life in our work or in our toil? And the teacher says, the sole pursuit of seeking success in work will not end well. How so? Chapter 2, verse 18, read this with me, through 19. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave the one to someone who comes after. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Imagine with me for a second that your sole pursuit of the good life is to get up that ladder. To advance in your career. To make more money as a result. That you can buy more things and have a nice house. You all know the saying, there are no U-Hauls following a hearse. You can't take it with you when you go. All the stuff you earn in life will be given to another and you have no control over what they will do with it. Add to that, if you have a job today and you are fired from that job, you know what that job will do? It will find someone else. You know what everybody that you thought was your best friend at at work will do? They will stop calling. I know this. I'm a pastor. I moved around. I know this. People I poured my life into, I never hear from anymore. That's not unique to me. Your job will forget you. They will find someone else. If your sole pursuit for the good life is a career, that career will not last. You will replace. You will move on. And all the money you earn doing that in which you bought all those other things that you thought would bring the good life, Once you pass from this life to the next, they're gone, out of your control. So if 
The pursuit of success in our work is our sole pursuit in the good life. We're going to be disappointed. Now again, all of these things, nothing wrong with them. A good job and doing your best at your career, making a difference in your workplace, there's nothing wrong with that. Being the best mom you can be to take care of those kids, being the best father you can be, there's nothing, that, those are, these are all good pursuits. They just can't be the pursuit of our lives. They are not the way to find the good life. In other words, it seems like that they would be, but they're not. That gets us to the word meaninglessness. It is, I think, one of the most challenging things about Ecclesiastes and why I wanted to read the first part of chapter 1 to you because when the writer of Ecclesiastes says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, when that's like verse 2 in a book of the Bible, it's a little concerning, right? Do I really want to keep reading this thing? I would rather begin with so-and-so begot so-and-so. This is depressing, What is going on? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's different translations to our English Bible. And so it's not always translated, that word meaningless, as meaningless. In the ESV or King James, it is translated as vanity. In the NASB and the CSB, it's translated futility. It's not only one word, but it is the two words. Meaningless, meaningless. Vanity of vanities. It is emphasizing something that just is not possible. What is the thing that's not possible? What is the thing that is unfathomable? That was hard to say. I had to slow down. What are the things that we find in life that are like an enigma to me? I just can't wrap my mind around this. See, this is the position of the teacher. I've had all these incredible experiences. I've had all these wonderful things. I've got all this wisdom. I've got all this pleasure. Everybody in the kingdom knows my name. Look at the work of my hands. If indeed it was Solomon, look at this temple. And yet somehow, and it doesn't make sense to me, but somehow this is not adding up to the good life. And it would be sad if we had to experience all that he experienced to know that ourselves. I think it would be much better if we just could learn from him. And what could we learn? That he found the good life not in comprehending the world God has created. Not in all that God allows or all that God does. He did not find the good life in that either. Chapter 3, verse 11, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Chapter 8, verse 17, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. In other words, what goes on in this broken world we live in. Chapter 11, verse 5, you cannot understand the works of God, the maker of all things. Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb. There are things beyond our knowledge. Maybe we pursue all those four things and we say, well, if I could just understand God then, 
And the writer of Ecclesiastes says you can't understand him either. The writer of Ecclesiastes says I cannot find the good life in the future or my attempts to control it either. Maybe that's our thinking. I would have the good life if I knew what was to come and I could control that. He says no one can discover anything about their future. Chapter 7, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? Is not the pursuit of wisdom, pleasures, a name that will last, success at work, knowing everything about God and all the ways of God, being able to control the future, to know the future and to control it, Hopefully you're starting to ask the question then, what's the answer? He wrote this whole thing to answer that question. What is the good life? What's his answer? He actually drops down into various places in the book of Ecclesiastes to give the answer. I'll, I'll give you one. In many places he says something like this, okay? Let, let me preface this with there are two answers. There are two answers to what is the good life. And as I said, he drops down and gives this one particular answer several times. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 18. He says, this is what I have observed to be good. This is, uh, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun. During the few days of life, God has given them, for this is their lot. And you hear that and you think, that's the answer? (laughs) Really? That's it? Let's unpack it a little bit because I think once we kind of get a a better understanding of what he's actually saying here, it's actually very encouraging. What he's saying is that enjoy the life God has given you right now. Enjoy the blessings God has placed in your life right now. How much of our misery and hopelessness has to do with worry about the future? Right? How many of us get worked up about what could happen? How many of us fret about what we don't know? He says, you want the good life? Enjoy what God has given you today. Enjoy the work He has given you today. Enjoy the blessings He has given you today. Think about that stuff. Let that fill your mind. Let that fill up your prayers. Let that shape your thinking. Just thank God for what he has given you and done for you and the work he's called you to do today. Jesus would say it like this. Why do you worry about tomorrow? Worry's not going to add a single minute to your life. Every day has enough trouble of its own, Jesus said. The teacher's saying the same thing. It's a good exercise. It's good to do it right now. I would encourage you to. Think about it just for a second. Right now. What are the blessings God has given you? What are the good things he's brought in your life? What is the meaningful work he's called you to do? Paid or unpaid? Can you enjoy that today? And not worry about the future so much? Now, now don't misunderstand me. To think about the future, to plan for the future, all good stuff. But we can worry fret over, 
kill our joy in the pursuit of knowing that which we cannot know. Changing that which we cannot change. Or we can embrace what God has put on our plate today. That's part of the answer to what is a good life. It's enjoying the blessings of God today and the meaningful work he's given us. Second answer. What is a good life? The second answer is found at the end of Ecclesiastes and... It's possible that it's not actually written by the author of Ecclesiastes or or it's not written by the teacher of Ecclesiastes. But the author who is observing the teacher and recording his words then takes all that, encapsulates it, and kind of gives you a conclusion. You'll notice that as you read through. And so as he's looking at the whole of what the writer of Ecclesiastes has laid out for us, he says these words in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says... Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Right? He's wrapping this up for us. Fear God and keep his commands. For this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God and keep his commands. Now we understand fear does not mean a cowering fear. It is a healthy respect for a glorious God who has made all that we can see, including ourselves. An all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present and all-loving God, when we really think about who He is, there should be a reverence for Him. And out of reverence for Him, there should also be a deference to Him. Meaning that not only am I in awe of who He is, but I want to please Him with my life. I want to follow the commands of God. And I think when we read that, it gives us not only the two answers to the question, but also how we fulfill those answers in our life. The first, as we have said, is that we enjoy what God has given us today. The blessings, the important work that God has called us to do. We enjoy that today without fretting about tomorrow. And then the second one is that we have a healthy understanding of who God is, a respect for God, and we want to live our life in light of His commands. He's given us a way to live, and if we follow that way to live, we will experience the good life. There is a problem with this, however. A pretty big problem. And if you're reading with me in chapter 12, you notice I didn't finish verse 14. Because there's the problem. The problem is that the author who is writing about the teacher says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Earlier... The teacher would write in chapter 7, verse 20, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. If part of the good life is to do the will of God, and yet the author or the teacher of Ecclesiastes says, But ain't nobody doing it. Then we have a problem, right? That means the good life becomes inaccessible to us. I might be able to do the first thing, Enjoy the blessings of God and pursue the good work He's called me to. But how can I do the second thing in following all the commands? I don't measure up over here. I may be able to do this, but I can't do this. What the author of Ecclesiastes or the teacher of Ecclesiastes did not know that we know is that there is one who did do it right. Ecclesiastes 7.20, indeed there is no one on earth who is righteous. See, there is one who is righteous. 
For God will bring, chapter 12, verse 14 of Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. There is one who did only good. And who is that? That's Jesus. He's the answer to this enormous problem with experiencing the good life when we are sinners. When we can't fear God and follow His commands perfectly. He's the way we get the good life, despite ourselves. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. A guy named Paul who wrote this letter to a church. He's talked to them about his background. He says, but you know what? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake... I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, being perfect, following all the commands of God, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What I want you to hear Him saying is, the good life that is accessible to you and me comes through total obedience to God and all His commands You couldn't do it, but Jesus did. You can't stand on a right footing with God, but Jesus could. And what he did for us is he took our poor standing with God, all the commands that we had broken. He took them to the cross to pay that penalty on our behalf. But what this verse tells us is even more than that, he is giving us a righteousness that is not our own. What that means is, is that when God sees you as a Christian... He sees the record of his son, Jesus. He sees Jesus's right standing with God and he credits it to you. So forget a minute about what you think of you. Forget for just a minute about what others think of you. And just hear this. If you are in Jesus, what God thinks of you, he sees you through a righteousness that Jesus earned for you. And that is a good life. To know that my God would do that for me when I didn't earn it, never could. When the good life should be inaccessible to me, he became accessible to me. He came for me that I might know him and be found righteous, not because of myself, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father God, what a blessing to wrestle with your word, to try to seek to understand its meaning, to submit ourselves to it, even if perhaps we don't totally agree with it. God, in all of this, I just trust that you have spoken to us. In all of this, I trust that each and every one of us, we want that good life. Help us to find it in you and in nothing else. That you would be our sole pursuit and all other things that come our way would just be blessings. All other good gifts you give us would just be icing on top of the cake. We can just thank you and praise you for all the, all the great gifts you have given us and the great work you've called us to. Because we know our God in heaven has come for us to die for us. 
we might have the full life, the good life. For that, Father, what can we say but thank you? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Two possibilities to respond today to God's word. One is if you're a Christian and maybe worry has filled your mind and heart, take a moment during this invitation. Invite the Holy Spirit to show you the many blessings God has given you and the important work he has put on your plate to do. And just say, today I'm going to give thanks for that. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you would see the truth in Ecclesiastes that no, you you are not good enough. Neither am I. But that you might also see the whole picture of the Bible that Jesus was good enough for you. And that you might come to a point where you say, you know what? I'm going to quit trusting other things to get me the full life. I'm going to trust in Jesus for the full life. The good life. I'm going to pursue him. And you would make that decision to place your faith in him. However the Lord leads, this is a chance for us to respond as we sing this beautiful song about the Holy Spirit inviting him in. Let's invite him in. Let's respond to the Lord as we stand in.